Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Soccer Rangers podcast, where we focus on Mortal Kombat! Okay, not really, but last episode, we talked a little bit at the end about the trailer for the new Mortal Kombat movie, and both Tyler and I have concerns over how it's going to do, but for different reasons. And because of that, Amy made the brilliant suggestion that I should talk about one of the schlockiest films I have ever seen. But at the same time, what I would make an argument has been for the longest time the best example of a video game movie by textbook definition, not necessarily from a pure film perspective. That would be the original 1995 Mortal Kombat film. Its production history alone is worthy of notice. So we're just going to talk a little bit about that, the film itself, and if we got some time, we'll go and talk about the abomination uh, that came out called... Fuck it, we're just going to call it Abomination. No, the Annihilation Abomination. (laughs) Ah, the Annihilation Abomination. I like that. Also, hi, I'm Amy. I'm the Pink Ranger. I was just going to say, that's Amy. She's the Pink Ranger. (laughs) Joining me today also, we have, in no particular order... Tyler, the Black Ranger. Say hi, Tyler. Hey, it's me. How are you doing? Hey, how are you? How are you? We also have uh, John, the Silver Ranger. Hi, everyone. I'm Silver Ranger. And also joining me today, the guy with the best hair here, and the one most likely to embarrass himself by the end of this podcast, because I'm not sure he's actually seen the movie, Cole, the Green Ranger. Hi, everyone. And I have seen the movie. It was just a very, 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 very long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I just got- Fair enough. But I was apparently the only one who could not find it anywhere on the internet. Crazy. Go figure. Anyway. German Netflix with a VPN. (laughs) (laughs) It was also on... Brought to you by our sponsor, NordVPN. No, fuck those guys. Uh, No, ExpressVPN. (laughs) The fastest VPN there is, according to their own claims. Mm -hmm. Maybe. It works. <laughs> Unless you're trying to be in the UK. It does not like to work in the UK. Yeah. That's for whole different reasons. <laughs> anyway, with that, let us go and take ourselves way back to the year of 1992. <laughs> Come, everybody. Let's go and do the thing. Oh. What month is 1992? The film is from 1995, but our story has to go a little bit farther back. Oh. Oh, okay. Wait, wait. Did the game come out in 92? That's the year I was born. God, you are a baby. (laughs) She's technically the youngest of us all. (laughs) She was born the same year as my brother. Oh, that's... Oh, are you talking about the year that... Oh, October 8th, 1992, so I am just a few months older than Mortal Kombat. Congratulations. The game that... October 8th, 1992. She's younger than my brother. The game that almost (laughs) got all video games banned from the market. Not quite. The game that I got at Goodwill with a little piece of notebook paper for the blood cheat folded up lovingly and put into the manual. I love it. (laughs) But yeah, going way, way back... We gotta talk about the original game from 1992. Fuck you, phone. I thought I'd muted you already. Anyway. <laughs> See, way, 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 way back in the past, 
there was this little company by the name of Midway. And they were pretty big in the licensed IP games. They were big into arcade cabinets, and they were starting to go and work into the home console revolution with the now heating up war between Nintendo and Sega. Sega! <laughs> John Tobias and Ed Boone, two producers over there, were working on a project for a Universal Soldier uh, tie-in game. Because back in the day, those things actually made money, and at the time had some credibility. People hadn't realized that 99% of them suck. Unfortunately, the game fell through. See, Midway was getting really big into using digitized graphics to try to bypass a lot of the more cartoonish elements of design that were coming along with arcade cabinets at the time. And the title, or the title star of the film, Jean-Claude Van Damme, was unfortunately working on a different project at the time and wasn't going to be available for a digitizing process. And Midway didn't want to put the money in to go and make a game that would require all new sprites to be developed. Kind of sad, but it fell through. They had an open slot, wanted to try to come up with something else. Try to get a license for the other Jean-Claude Van Damme movie of the year, uh, Bloodsport, which they also could not get the rights to for some unbeknownst reason to the rest of us. The big thing back then was these were all stepping stones. John Tobias, Richard Divizio, Carlos and Daniel Pisano, as well as Ed Boone, all wanted to go and make a fighting game. Take things to a little bit more of a serious, more tonally intense level than what Street Fighter was doing in the arcade at the time. And for the record, Street Fighter at the time being the biggest arcade game in the world in the history of mankind by the amount of money that was being generated by those arcade cabinets. How, long, Fighter had, two, how long had it been out by that point? A uh, couple of years at that point, and Street Fighter 2 was starting to ramp up production. Midway, with nothing coming up in their production slate for the following year in 1992, said they wanted to go and come up with something to compete with the upcoming Street Fighter 2 title that was getting ready to come out. John Tobias and Ed Boon wanted to make a ninja fighting game for years. And this was finally their opportunity. They actually got together uh, uh, Carlos Pisano, who was one of the uh, developers and considered to be one of the real brainchilds of the process, borrowed his father's home video camera. And the four of them started working out different character designs and actually went and did test filming in their family home. This was a game that was almost made in a garage. This is a weird story in the first place. I am not going to go into the whole history of it, but it's kind of funny going and seeing these names of the people that made these games and are at least a few of them still involved with the development of Mortal Kombat games this time. Also being the people that you're seeing in those digitized characters in the original game. Richard DiVizio playing Kano, uh, Carlos Pisano, uh going and playing the role of Johnny, her, uh, sorry, Daniel Pisano playing the role of Johnny Cage, as well as Sub Zero, Scorpion, and Reptile. Uh, Carlos Pisano played uh, Raiden. Uh, they also went and brought in a couple of other people from the uh, Midway team, including Ho Sung Pak, to go and play Liu Kang, as well as Shang Tsung, and uh, Elizabeth Malik as Sonya Blade, the at the time title female character. Because, you know, they really weren't thinking too hard on that one at the time, and it was kind of a mandate more than anything else. The game came out in 1992 and became an instant success. 
it's a lot of times conflated. People believe that this was suddenly the biggest game in the history of mankind. It actually still was lagging behind Street Fighter 2, but it drove so much more attention with its over-the-top, bloody graphics, the visual aesthetic being completely different than any other fighting game at the time, and a more in-depth combat system than what was being offered by anybody else in the competition at the time. And weren't the sound it was effects huge. also kind of interesting? Like, the actual, like, vocalized sound effects that they put in with it? Oh, yeah, no. It's yeah. it's actually kind of funny. <laughs> it's all the same original guys that were inside of the suits doing it. I, I just love the fact that this was basically made by a, far, a four-man team and had, like, 400 producers attached to it. It's the weirdest story, period. The games made a lot of money and went and got the attention of Larry Kazanoff. People might be familiar with that name. Uh, I don't you know, recognize Yeah, well, he, he co-founded uh, Lightstorm Entertainment along with James Cameron uh, shortly before the development of Terminator 2. Ah. Big hit. Yep. Yeah, kind of a big deal. Uh, he also started his own company shortly afterward, Threshold Entertainment. Which I know is at least raising John's eyebrows, because I think we all know a particularly terrible animated film that came out a few years ago uh, that was also made by Threshold Entertainment. How about you remind everybody else? Uh, the Larry Kazanov produced Food Fight. Food Fight! Oh, no. Oh, yeah. No, man. This... You are going to see so many threads <laughs> connecting by the end of this. It's insane. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I have my pin board, my thumbtacks, and my yarn ready. Oh, get get ready, okay? Because there's going to be so much here. Okay, just go into start off with uh, Bloodsport, Universal Soldier, Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, Threshold Entertainment, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll add a few more to this by the end. <laughs> All right, my red marker, Mike, I'm going to color code this with the yarn and the markers. And also, I have some glitter glue ready just in case. Oh, so perfect, let me know perfect. If I can uh, just just that. start dressing up Larry Kazanov's imagery on there because this guy is magic. I don't know how the hell he's still employable in this day and age, but god damn it, he's a wizard somehow. Apparently, he is. Yep. So, Larry Kazanov discovered the game seeing some of the news stories going on about it on how popular it is and actually playing the game himself was completely enthralled by the whole concept of this he actually described <laughs> i i'm serious I'm sorry fighting video games being described as enthralling <laughs> is amazing to me like i love fighting video games but enthralled is some strong verbiage yeah well it's it's funny because and this is gonna be a theme with the movie as well the story of Mortal Kombat, especially in the Mortal Kombat 1 and 2 days, was very minimal. Mm -hmm. The themes were much stronger than what the actual story itself was. This is something that caught Kazanov really off guard. He hadn't seen storytelling like this in an arcade cabinet. He actually described it uh, when going and promoting uh, the film, or I should say pitching the film, to companies like New Line Cinema, who would eventually pick it up, as being... God, I just feel so weird saying this. He described it as Star Wars meets Enter the Dragon. <laughs> it could work. Taking mm. lots of points of different mythologies and finding a way to mix them together in a larger, uh, more character-focused story. I, I will go and say it's a bit of a stretch, but I at least get the spirit of where he's coming from. But that's neither here nor there. 
Also, so, you got to admire that unshakable confidence. Oh, That's you, amazing. No, you have no idea because this is where things get crazy. This oh, film no. never should have been able to be made. So Kazanov goes to Midway and barges his way into a meeting with the CEO and says, and I quote, if you give me the rights to this, I will produce this. It will, it will not just be in movies, but in every medium in the world. This guy was set. He I wanted mean, to go and do animated television series, live action TV. He wanted to do audio dramas. He wanted to do lunchboxes, more video games. The guy was convinced this could be an industry-changing franchise. I mean, we did get the animated TV show. Later. <laughs> but yeah, uh, to this, the guys at Midway laughed him out of the building. They thought he was crazy. They didn't know who this guy was. Just shows up. He says, I made Terminator 2. I want the rights to Mortal Kombat. I am going to make this bigger than you can imagine. And nobody believed him. But he would not relent. He was calling people inside of the company for three months straight. <laughs> this guy would not, he would not take no for an answer. I weirdly respect this psychopath. And I do mean psychopath, but we'll get to that later. Just, like I said, Glitter glitter Kazanov. He's, he's kind of great. So, he eventually got the rights to this. And from there, started going out to everybody to go and find a studio that would go and help for release. Hold on, hold on, New hold lines. on. You said yeah. he just badgered the living shit out of this production company. Until they were like, shut the fuck up here, take the fucking thing. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's how we got the rights to Mortal Kombat. <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> They insane, gave it to man. him to shut, just tell him to shut up. Go away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it is crazy. And people say that persistence, is, persistence isn't rewarded. Yeah. <laughs> if you're Larry Kazanov, it's the only way it's rewarded. Apparently. Yeah. So after going and securing Midway Entertainment, he went on to start to go and develop. He went and brought in uh, Kevin Droney, the writer of the uh, Highlander TV series. Also, fun fact, there was a Highlander TV series. Who the fuck knew? Hmm, I, 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 did. I did. I used to watch yeah. it. it was really <laughs> yeah, good. same oh. here. There we go. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyway, got him in there going and writing the original screenplay. Uh, brought in Allison Savage as the visual director. Uh, you might also know her from Terminator 2. Once again, we got all these little connecting threads going on here. This is going to get really weird. We're going to be weaving a tapestry by the end of this. <laughs> so, Kazanov was already dealing with a battle situation right off the bat. New Line multiple times tried to cancel the film before it got out of pre-production. Everyone told him it would be the end of his career. A New Line producer, when handed the first draft of the script, absolutely hated it. Now, it wasn't apparently this producer, but some bigwig who has still remained unnamed but has been quoted by at least a dozen people involved in the making of this film described a particular event where a producer came in screaming at the top of his lungs in the production room, I hate this movie, I hate this script, yelled at them for about an hour and said, make it anyway. <laughs> Once again, this film should not have been made. <laughs> Things were finally starting to go and progress. 
Ed Boon and uh, John Tobias were both sent copies of the initial script, and they hated it and demanded rewrites. It was <laughs> too funny. They were hoping for more of a Jason and the Argonaut style film, where it got worse before it got better. Which I will say was definitely something we got in the final film, but not necessarily at the pleasure of everybody that was working on it. <laughs> on top of this, during pre-production, well, Mortal Kombat has a reputation for a reason. The game has become so popular, especially post-release of number two, that you were going and looking at congressional hearings that were being done, trying to go and determine whether or not video games of that nature, and Night Trap for that matter, which I actually would make the argument was a more egregious offender if we're talking about what kids were exposed to. Blood happens! You ever scraped your knee? So question... Who cares if it's coming out of the spinal cord you ripped out of a guy's neck? So question... Yeah, every time I rip someone's heart out of their chest, there's at least a little blood. Exactly! It's perfectly normal! It's human! Also, you fucking ice queen! That's an inside joke for anybody that has no idea what the hell we are. <laughs> but in any case... <laughs> Um, I, I'm curious. The the I thought that happened during during the case of episode this first game. Was or, or am I thinking this wrong? Well, so here's the thing. Controversy started with the first game, but congressional hearings didn't actually start until the second game had been released. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then when so it's kind of roping everything <coughs> in at that point. Okay. But speaking chronolo or chronologically, number two really went and pushed things over. It wasn't just one thing to have one game that was like this. But between that, Night Trap, and the sequel going and doing even better than the first in terms of uh, revenue, it was a big deal. Okay, and, and I will go and say, there was probably some necessity to go and have some sort of at least rating system, much like how the MPAA was originally started, despite not agreeing really with how the MPAA works. I will say, I think it has some value, at least as a concept. Do you know... Uh, uh this film is not rated. <laughs> is a really good uh, tangent into yeah our movie rating system. Yeah, absolutely wonderful documentary. Um, an actually interesting fact is that um, the reason that the rating system and uh, the way that NCAA and copyright stuff is dealt with is because Nickelback got mad at Napster. Anyway, <laughs> at some level, yeah, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, but which so. is why Twitch also then proceeded to play goobly stuff over top of TwitchCon. <laughs> yeah. or, 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 sorry, TwitchCon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so th this is where things get absolutely um, fucking bananas. So we got congressional hearings, we have the founding of the ESRB, and the guys at New Line are actively at this point trying to find any loophole they can to cancel this movie. It's far <laughs> enough into development at this point that they are financially committed to this $13 million movie. Okay, I was just about to ask. They don't... <laughs> Yeah, they don't know what the hell to go and do in this situation. They can't figure out anything. So they decide to go with the nuclear option. They force Kazanoff and the rest of the team that they're only allowed to go and make the film up to PG-13. They will not be allowed to make an R-rated film because if the film does somehow manage to come out, they have to go and cater to the kids that are their primary demographic. <laughs> Remember, this was a time on where the idea of an adult gamer really was not a huge thing. Yeah, there were uh -huh. still the guys that like playing Mario in their 20s, but doesn't necessarily mean that they're the kind of people they would expect to go to the movies either to see them. On top of that, you had the release of the Super Mario Brothers movie, uh, the first. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no! Connection. Let's go! Yep. So, terrible movie. Worse movie. It's 
There's a worse one we're gonna talk about later. <laughs> I don't know, man. I kind of like the other one over in Mario Brothers. I don't think we're thinking of the same one. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. No, but that that movie is pretty bad, all things considered. It's a production nightmare. I could talk about that one too, but that would be like ten minutes of just me ranting about why you don't go and give the people that made Max Headroom any creative freedom. <laughs> On a Bob Hoskins movie that had a script fully written and already had production stuff going into effect and then completely scrapped and rewritten weeks before the film started. Anyway, let's get back to it. Mario Brothers still made a lot of money. So New Line did go and see at least some potential and started backing off the idea of trying to cancel the film coming out entirely. They thought there was at least a chance of being able to go and make some money given on how big of a hit Mario was and the fact that one of the New Line Cinema executives described it as being the hokiest horse shit I've ever seen in the theaters. What was it rated? Uh, that one, PG. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mario Bros. was... Uh... Mario Bros. was fucking weird. Anyway. But today we're talking about Mortal Kombat. Exactly, going back to this. Uh, so... They got everything worked out to go into a PG-13 film. The MPAA agreed that they would go and seriously consider it because back then the MPAA was being particularly aggressive because they did not want congressional scrutiny coming down on them after what happened to the entire video game industry over this game. So, now it came to going and finding directors, honing down the script, and figuring out where to go. Now... Larry Kazanoff had seen a film from a young British director by the name of Paul Anderson, the film being Shopping, which I will say, actually, I watched after going and finding out this detail. I have no idea why he got picked to go and direct this movie. I swear to God, it's because he was cheap. It's not a bad film, but it has nothing even remotely similar to what we got out of the Mortal Kombat movie. It's weird. Hmm. <laughs> it's, like that's so, the, it's, it's like that's the key word of his entire conversation. Pretty much, yeah. Just weird is a great way of describing this whole thing. Uh, The decisions were made while the script was still being finalized, now going and having Ed Boon, one of the executive producers of the video games, now being involved in the actual script writing process, that they were going to have the entire full cast of Mortal Kombat 1, as well as a couple of select characters from Mortal Kombat 2. Uh, Katana going and being one of the biggest examples there uh, to the actual... uh, roster itself and definitely the most consequential addition from Mortal Kombat 2 to the main game cast. There was a lot of interesting things going on during this time as well. Because while they were working on the script, they were starting to go and be development work and trying to figure out casting and trying to go and define the looks. The visual visual designers were working on trying to come up with ways of going and making film quality characters to to go and put on film. And they ended up doing something really smart. They actually brought in focus groups of kids to go and help develop the looks. They had done a whole bunch of concept drawings, trying to find stuff that would look good on film, that also would go and speak to the nature of the characters and making sure that it still felt organic. This actually ends up saving a few things, including Kano, who originally was going to be done without his metal faceplate, because... No! I know, right? Yeah, so they were concerned. Kazanov really 
And once again, I think this is something that worked to the film ultimately, despite being definitely one of his obsessive points that didn't need to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to do anything that looked like anything he had ever worked on before. And he saw that half-metal face as being way too close to the Terminator or to the Terminator films that he had produced at the time. Oh. So they went through constant redraws and eventually settled on something that looks pretty nice and would ultimately actually end up being uh, the going forward design for the metal faceplate for Kano. Kano was really affected heavily by this film. I'll talk more about that towards the end, but I'm shocked on how much that worked out. There was also a curious question that kept being asked by almost every focus group of kids involving the character Goro that I'm going to circle back around to later <laughs> because, once again, there's some weird shit in this movie. With everything starting to go and work out, we are getting into the later part of 1993. They're about ready to go and start with actual filming. Principal photography is starting to go underway. They're beginning to figure out locations as well as going and figuring out who's going to be doing the actual visual effects work and all of that. But casting took prime focus on here. And this is where everything should have fallen apart because New Line, seeing the success of Mario Brothers, was like, we really need some star power in this. Uh, Ed Boon actually remembers having multiple conversations with the name Danny Glover being pitched as Raiden. Wait, what? <laughs> yes! <laughs> New Line, for some reason, was really hung up on the idea of the guy from Predator 2 being the perfect guy to go and play a Southeast Asian god of lightning. Yeah. I have a quick question. Yeah. This was still the age before Japanese martial arts films really came across the ocean, right? Or is this well, right around the time where it actually started to come over? Or was it the it, 90s? It, start, it, was the, it was the 90s where it really started to come over, right? It, it, it was popularizing through the 80s, but really hadn't hit mainstream its success until really after this film came out. Right. Uh, okay. So, in other words, yeah. they could have just gone to Hong Kong. Well, this is where things get kind of interesting here. Okay, also, Danny Glover would have been a fine choice because this... The actor for Raiden was ass. Yeah. Oh, I am Raiden. Yeah. Uh, the voice was, like, inconsistent and shitty. I was like, why is he doing that to his voice? And then the next actor in Annihilation just drops it. Yeah. Weird. And he's, like, a whole lot more charismatic, <laughs> so, and he's just in there. I'm like, oh, I like that. I like, he's, oh, what else is he in? He's in a lot of comedy stuff. That's the second movie. I'm serious, yeah. and I'm talking to you about a prophecy, and you are the one who can save the world. Like, he literally talks like that. He talks like me trying to sound like a gruff man, but he is a man doing that voice. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna... cool with Danny Glover. Like, whatever culture Aiden originally was aside, fuck, like, why not? Yeah, I mean, I, I still stand by. Regardless of what the character has become at this point, this was back when these characters really did not have full backstories. So you really uh -huh. could have gotten away with anything. Mm -hmm. He would have been fine, I do believe. It's just one of those... Did they not see the white guy we went dressed up in a rice patty hat? <laughs> it is really <laughs> random. It is exactly. really it's random. Like, really? I don't know. I like, mean... I, I like Predator too, but... You know, really? him being Caucasian is kind of a strange choice too. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to argue that. But once again, this was before these characters were really fully developed. Right, and before people really cared about, like... Yeah. 
representation of different subcultures. Like, not that people didn't care, but it wasn't... It, it wasn't as um, hot-button as what it is now, and there wasn't as much well, focus not on not hot-button. I don't want to say hot-button, because it, it is important to have representation mm -hmm. in movies, but we just weren't talking about so, it. Yeah. And now we are, and now we're fixing it, but... Those were mistakes that were made. So the yeah. one who were, not good the one who replaced him was James Ramar. Mm -hmm. James Ramar, I'm reading. And, and is still <laughs> active to this day because he's taking part in the Black Light, the Black Lightning TV series. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, which is actually kind okay, of roundabout. So it actually makes sense. Like, ta -da. yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's some weird connections. Uh, but yeah, so um, just because. I, I gotta go and save Raiden for the end here. Because the story of how Christopher Lambert got the role is even more insane than Danny Glover. <laughs> so, uh, Liu Kang was the one that everybody was really focused on. This was going to be the title character. Even though he isn't the original Mortal Kombat character even, Johnny Cage was actually, surprisingly enough, the first character model they came up with for the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew that Liu Kang needed to be the focus on there, and they needed to go hard on the casting. There were a lot of people that were considered for the role. Uh, ultimately, Robin Show was the one who got it, and you want to go and talk about Hong Kong, this is a prime example right here. Uh, he trained in Wushu, had gone to California to get his college degree, wasn't really thrilled with the idea of going and staying in communications, giving his martial arts background growing up. So he went back to Hong Kong as a stuntman and eventually became a fairly well-known actor across, well, just the entire Asian market. So he didn't have any interest in this film originally, but his agents and producers kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him until he eventually relented and went in for an audition. New Line didn't like the idea of having an actor that didn't have any sort of real notoriety in the U.S. market going and taking on the primary role of the film. So they made him audition for everybody. Executive producers, director, the heads of New Line, the producers, or the uh, 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 screen, produ or the, uh, screen tag producers, the or special effects producers. He had to audition seven times before they eventually gave him the role. Hmm. This just goes to show how like difficult this th that industry is. Because if you're oh, yeah. new at all and you're like, they just so happen to impress somebody, you're still going to have to go through 15 other people. And he was a good yeah. choice for that role. Yeah, no, I mean, for a guy that did not have any American acting credits before it, he really did a fantastic job. I, I really did like Robin Show's uh, just the whole performance in there. I won't say that he's the strongest actor in the film, but I will say I found it genuine. So, uh, great There's pick only there. like 15 minutes of acting in the whole movie yeah. anyway, and the rest is fight scenes, so Pretty it's much. fine. They yep, do exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, they really do just do all the plot in the beginning, and then they just go, okay, now here's the tournament. Fight, 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 fight just in a row and then there's just little snippets in between of nothing it's like oh it, yeah it's just fights all through now that's it yeah really good, good I, i'm just shocked really good fights actually <laughs> yeah no i i'm absolutely shocked given on who his competition was now full disclosure brandon lee was actually the original front runner for the role huh. but sadly since he died filming the crow in 1993 he wasn't an option may anymore. he rest in peace exactly and that's what really opened things up 
But honestly, I think the more interesting thing than just him getting the role is who he was up against and actually managed to go and beat. Guys like Ernie Reyes Jr., Jason Scott Lee, Russell Wong, Philip Lee. All of those guys had notoriety, either in Golden Glove, uh, U.S. Martial Arts tournaments. There was at least some notoriety behind these guys. And just this random stuntman from Hong Kong ends up getting the role. I, that's awesome. I love that. Really cool. Yeah, the best guy got the job for it. Not only does he have the role, he keeps it into the second movie, which no one else <laughs> Yes, <did. laughs> one of only two people to do that in the entire film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which brings us to uh, Lyndon Ashby, the uh, Golden Glove boxing champion, uh, who later on became an actor. He was the first and really only choice after Jean-Claude Van Damme turned them down to go and do Street Fighter the movie, playing, you know... Guile, the American. <laughs> the muscles from Brussels. Playing Guile. The Air Force guy. <laughs> Have I mentioned that I love Street Fighter the movie for all the reasons you shouldn't? <laughs> That's kind of how you That's like it, though. That's a separate podcast. Yeah, nope, not going into that rant there. Of course! Just... <laughs> and the fact being, Rob, that as long as we've known you, this has been a trend. I know. Terrible movies just are the best thing to me. They really are. All right, Captain Alex, keep going. Yep. Uh, this is where things get really interesting because uh, the person that actually got the role of Sonya Blade was Cameron Diaz. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, you see, New Line had just finished releasing The Mask when they were going into production. And we're looking for somebody that would be relatively inexpensive, but somebody that had some good physical acumen. Uh, Cameron Diaz, apparently in auditioning for The Mask, had actually uh, done a full uh, Aikido uh, routine to go and show her physicality probably because originally her character's role was written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was. Uh, it was originally written to be a little bit more of an active role, and it was more than just the look. She knew she had that. She needed to go and prove that she could be physical. And then, ironically, it got completely written out because Jim Carrey was not as physically capable as she was. Hmm. Funny. But the film was a huge success. She was somebody that could be something interesting. And they'd already signed her to undisclosed op her to undisclosed options. They were able to get her cheap. So she got signed to the role. That was great. She was really excited about that. She was a big fan of, the, or of uh, older TV shows like Charlie's Angels. Love the idea of kicking butt as a lady. Love her for it. Also, Charlie's Angels, the movie, with Cameron Diaz a few years later. I wonder why. <laughs> Connections. Although not being done by New Line, interesting enough. So, with those three out of the way, then it came to the easiest casting decision possible. Wait, why didn't Cameron Diaz make it into the final movie? I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> put a pin in that. Ooh, put that pin off to the yep, side. Just keep, keep on my board. Okay, pin. The yarn is dangling until you tell me where to connect it. Exactly. He, yes, but now we go and get to the perfect casting decision. Raiden. <laughs> Danny Glover was out. Couldn't do that. But they knew the right man for the job. Mr. Sean Connery! <laughs> <laughs> was offered the job nobody else was being considered for the role at the time. Lu Kang, you need to shave, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. Sean. Luke Kang, I can't do it. Can somebody else? The race. That's William Shatner. No, that's not Sean Connery. Oh, that's Sean William Con Shatner. Oh, I, why am I thinking that? Uh, 
Uh, I remember. Uh, game is afoot. Liu Kane, you need to save the world for the evil uh, emperor is coming to do it. Uh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> That's close Seven enough. Rounds you just watched the movie and you yes, don't know what they're coming. Yes. <laughs> yes. You three. No, no, I can't even you do it. I, I can't. Tyler did it too well. I, I can't even go and follow that yeah, up. Yeah, that was pretty you good. Came. If only you remembered the plots yes, of the yes, movies you, you watched last week. Yes, one of you three will be the ones to determine the fate of your world. Johnny Cage. <laughs> Clearly Sorry. you're the one who's most mortal here. You will be the strongest being mortal. That's how it works, okay? <laughs> anyway, where's my martini? <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, when Sean Connery's agent accepted the role and they started talking to Sean Connery, he said, I'd rather play golf. <laughs> and tore up his contract. <laughs> he had zero interest in this. That's awesome. Even after the film came out and was a hit, people asked him about this and he said, what, that piece of shit came out? <laughs> that piece of he shit literally came out. had no idea. That's awesome. That's another reason of why you just kind of have to love Sean Connery for being... That lovable Scottish asshole. Anyway. RIP. <laughs> so, yep. So, with that in place, they had to find somebody else. So they decided to go to the other Highlander actor, Christopher Lambert. <laughs> <laughs> you can really tell the new line was going for somebody with star power. And, well, I will go and say I do agree with A.V. that his performance is absolutely Ass. bug nuts. He does have a weird amount of charisma. Yeah. And he did lend star power to the film. Like, there are some scenes so, where he was actually pretty, really good as Raven. Yeah, well, I, I just kind of love the fact that most of his lines were ad-libbed. Mm-hmm. Not that they didn't write lines for him, just, can I try something? And they just liked them more. He made a character out of it, and ultimately... His portrayal of Raiden would be what ended up becoming more or less the canon character. Yeah. Cocky. Little bit humorous. Fairly easygoing. But also ready to kick some ass when he needs to. Mm -hmm. He defined a character, which is really fucking awesome, actually. <laughs> but at the same time, wow, that was an interesting choice, all things considered. But ultimately, he's kind of the reason why the film got made and we'll get back to that later they did go and finish everything else out uh with uh oh okay i gotta make sure i go and pronounce this right uh carrie hiroyuki takawa you may know him better as johnny tsunami's grandfather huh. from the disney channel original movie johnny tsunami hmm. going and playing the role of uh <clears throat> one Shao Kahn. Mm. So, uh, sorry, Shang Tsung, not Shao Kahn. I'm getting all the way to the end of the movie here. This is terrible of me. Uh, Talisa Soto got the role of Katana, the other person that actually managed to go and survive through to the second film. And treasure her, Trevor Goddard was cast as Kano. Mm. It would not listen to any sort of direction when it came to how the character was supposed to be played. More on this mm. later. <laughs> uh, this was a great cast, though. So most of the people that were in this, with the exception of Lambert and uh, Cameron Diaz, all of them went and had martial arts backgrounds. Uh, oh, I almost forgot. Um, uh, Hakeem Olsen, uh, as well as uh, Kenneth Edwards, uh, 
were in the film as Fighting Monk and Art Lean. And the roles of uh, Scorpion was done by uh, Chris Kasasama and uh, Francois Petit played the role of Sub-Zero. Mm. These were huge deals because these were guys that were on the fighting circuits and kind of un- it's kind of unheard of to go and pull them off of those circuits where they're continually going and racking up wins and fights uh, to go and do any sort of scripting roles. I still have no idea what the hell they did in the particular case of Francois Petit, who at the time was considered to go and be one of the best judo fighters in the world. Really strange to me that they were able to get him for the film. Not complaining, though. He did great with Sub-Zero. Mm-hmm. Like- so, with all this brought together, they had to go and bring in the perfect stunt coordinator. Oh, no. This actually is one of the few casting decisions that made total sense. So, they went for who was at the time regarded as the best stunt coordinator in the world, uh, as well as his assistant, uh, to go and do the work on there. They ended up settling on Pat Johnson, hmm. the ninth degree black belt. He trained under uh, Chuck fucking Norris. You might have heard of him. Okay. Yeah. And this was a guy that had been flown and had done 140 at the time, 140 different productions across the entire world, including almost 100 of them in Hong Kong alone. Okay, awesome. I was about to ask, because I actually personally have not... I don't have a lot of background in actually... Yeah, no, it, he's a very interesting guy. Like, this this was somebody who had a huge reverence for uh, that type of martial arts play, and outside of the ninth degree black belt, he was also trained in a whole bunch of other fighting disciplines. This is a guy who, granted, does do it for show. It's not what I would go and call him a competitive fighter in that respect. Right. But he knew how to go and develop things that would look good on camera, as well as go and be real. Uh, this is also the guy who is largely considered to go and be the reason on why the cast uh, did not get out of this without bruises. Uh, everybody that was on screen at some point had at least a welt on them. Uh, his motto on set was, if you get hit and you really feel it, don't stop. Because it probably looks real and you don't have to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> this was a guy that encouraged hits and I love him for that. Hey, sometimes that sells it. Yeah, well, and the cast also adopted a system, the ones to threes, which would refer to the number of uh, body parts that were either damaged or broken on any day of filming. Sounds about right. Yeah. Because it wasn't until the early 2000s that I think the union actually got involved. Yeah, I gotta go and say, this is one thing that's been really sad about American films when it comes to combat. Uh, And we're actually going to talk about that in a second. Um, So... With all the casting stuff worked out, the last thing was finishing off the actual set stuff. So they had rented three aircraft hangars uh, in Los Angeles to go and do all of the closed, all the indoor sets that were modified to go and look like everything. You can actually go and see just the undressed piece during Johnny Cage's introduction at the beginning (laughs) of the film. Because it was the first scene they shot before they started dressing everything else up. That's ingenious. Just like, yeah, it's like, Hey, can we uh, can we do something dumb? Also, can we get can we get a Steven Spielberg imposter in here? Why there's a Steven Spielberg imposter in that? I don't know, but they did it anyway. So they brought on John R. Leonetti as the master of photography. Him and Kazanoff went around the world trying to go and find locations to go and film in, and that brought them to Amni, Thailand. Hmm. Some beautiful temples out there. 
still largely functional, though obviously worn with age. Some of these temples are over a thousand years old, but no American film team had ever recorded there. They also found out very quickly why, because everything had to be accessed by boat. This was, this was New Line's most expensive production at the time when it came to transportation budget. They ended up spending almost a quarter of the film's total budget, reportedly, moving equipment for this particular film. They couldn't just use the dragon boat? Nope. Because it wasn't real. <laughs> that boat's actually kind of fun, too. Um, most of it that you actually see is not real. Uh, this film actually was really ahead of its time when it came to CG work. So a lot of accents of the boats, of the various set pieces, were actually all done digitally. It's really interesting. The Academy of Arts and Sciences, when it was being lobbied for visual effects awards, actually did not believe that the film's production and the points that they were bringing up were real. They actually had to go and show development footage to go and get any notoriety with the uh, Academy of Arts and Sciences. It's Well, like, insane. some points were really obvious. Oh, yeah. No, it's and not then, but the set and the that stuff that wasn't obvious. Yeah, no, not at all. And there's something else I bet that you didn't even pick up on that honestly I didn't until I started doing research that we'll get to here in a little bit. That reptile was CG. That reptile was very <laughs> CG and looked really bad. <laughs> oh no, I liked him. I'm not saying he wasn't cute. I'm just saying he looked bad compared to everything else. <laughs> he had a big bleppy tongue. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so. Filming is actually getting ready to go and start. We're a week before production is going to begin. They've been training all the cast for five months with Pat Johnson, getting themselves into the physical shape they need to. Learning different points of choreography, as well as just understanding proper combat. Not stage combat, actual fucking combat. Unfortunately, this almost wrecked the film. Mm. New Line nearly pulled it after Cameron Diaz found herself with a broken wrist. <laughs> Literally found herself unable Ugh. to go and shoot the movie right before filming was going into place. The reason why New Line almost canceled it at this point was because, despite the money they put into it, the second video game movie of all time came out. Double Dragon. <laughs> and it performed much worse than Mario yeah, Brothers. Double Dragon was... Ugh. Yep. It opened in 12th place at the box office. And almost single-handedly killed Alyssa Milano's then-virgining career as a solo actress outside of Who's the Boss. It wouldn't be until Charmed came around that her career would slowly start to go and rebuild itself. That movie nearly damn killed Alyssa Milano's career after being everybody's crush on Who's the Boss. I still don't know how to feel about this. But thankfully, there was a backup in place. Bridget Wilson, who a lot of you may know from the film... Uh, Billy Madison, the Adam Sandler vehicle, was literally finishing production on that film the day before they were getting ready to start production in Los Angeles in the hangars. So they signed her and flew her out to LA, literally the last day of filming on Billy Madison, just in time to go and start filming on set uh, for Mortal Kombat. They ultimately ended up shifting some things around. They actually moved several of the fights over to the beaches of Thailand instead of doing them all indoors like the original plan so they would have at least a little bit of time to get her up to speed to do some convincing fights. Especially with Sonya's character being so... Well, 
I won't say pivotal to the plot because that implies that there is a real plot in this movie. <laughs> but she... you want to see one girl character do well, and oh. Katana doesn't come in until much later. So a- exactly, no. And Sonya is still she's... a fan favorite yeah, for a lot of reasons. She's a MacGuffin yeah. of the plot, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Largely, that, that's fair. Oh, she is a little MacGuffin. Yeah. Ooh, Cameron Diaz in that pleather outfit. I know, right? I, I do. I will say I feel a little bit bad that we didn't get to go and see that. But at the same time, it's like, you know what? Bridget Wilson? She turned 21 during production? Looked pretty damn good. Just gonna say it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is the few times that Rob's chauvinistic side comes out, but it's like, I had a crush on her. I'm not even gonna pretend I didn't. <laughs> Anyway. Mm. Yes, I know. I've got a weird type. Women that can kick my no, ass. she's I can't cute. Explain. She's Bridget, adorable. She's cute. I missed her face in the second one because she has such a cute little unique face. Yeah, no, she she was honestly great. And I mean that outside of just the actual movie itself. Like, she apparently was just an absolutely fantastic person. But going back into production... Early filming began in the hangars. This is on where one of the coolest elements of the movie came into place. And that going being the actual fucking fights. Mm-hmm. During one of the earlier uh, shots fight, or one of the earlier uh, scenes shot in the actual movie was Johnny Cage's introduction. Which damn near killed the actor. You see, Paul Anderson had never shot action scenes like this before and had no idea about the idea of coverage or anything like that. So he kept doing everything in long shots and having them just reshoot the same sequences over and over and over again. Wait, really? The first day... Oh, yeah, no, it was pretty bad. Thankfully, despite not going and having Pat Johnson on set as, you know, he was going and training people off the actual sets themselves to make sure they were ready for the next day's scenes, uh, thankfully... They had to go and have most of the actors that were going to be, you know, background scene pieces and whatnot uh, in place and ready to go. Because they were shooting multiple scenes in a day. Uh, this is where Robin Show, Luke Kang, came into play. He was actually, or he actually pulled Anderson aside during one of the breaks they did. Because, once again, Ashby was dying. He was, like, literally ready to pass out and kept having to undo his shirt because he was going and just suffocating. Hmm. Uh, in his own sweat inside of that suit. He actually changed the suit three times in the course of that opening scene. Uh, and that's when Robin Show described her, went and brought up the concept of coverage and going and shooting uh, master shots and then going and having multiple inserts shots for coverage. That way you could still go and have those longer uninterrupted scenes, but go and have enough alternate angles as well as being able to go and do just short inter- or intercept shots to go and break up the action so you can still go and have the person in there clearly not being a stuntman or another actor which I hate to say has now become the norm and was the norm back then as well it's something that's very common in Hong Kong principal photography for these kind of films and it's something that Anderson jumped right into as soon as he heard the idea that that was even a thing and ultimately it did make production a lot easier from that point onwards the first day was described as hell and smooth beyond that which Obviously, made for something really great, especially for some of the later fights, including the film's diva, Goro. Mm. Oh, no. Sweet, beautiful Goro. The first of its kind puppet slash suit. Radio controlled. One suit actor on the inside, 150 pounds. And operated by the guy who made the suit as well. <laughs> <What>? uh, <laughs> yeah, Tom Woodruff... Uh, 
from uh, Amalgamated Dynamics was the guy that actually developed the entire system for the suit. And him and four puppeteers that were operating via remote control operated the suit. Hmm. It broke down constantly during production, but man, it looks so much better. Originally, they wanted to do it in CG, but at the time, they didn't believe the technology was good enough to be able to go and do processing at the speed that they needed to to make it look Smooth, believable, yeah. quote-unquote. Yeah. Nice. And they just didn't think that they were up to that point of visual fidelity. And I will say, I agree with them. I think it would have been a mistake. And the Goro puppet still looks good to this day. Yeah, it looked amazing in all the scenes. Well, He looks like Dark Crystal style. Yeah, well, the thing that's really fun about him, actually... So, bringing up that point of visual effects and things that you wouldn't expect... uh, Amy, since you uh, clearly actually paid a lot of attention to this film... Good for you, by the way. uh, Goro's facial animations, the lips in particular... You would say they look pretty good, wouldn't you? I think he looks like that um, that guy from Small Soldiers, kind of. Yeah, yeah. In the face. <laughs> totally they looked fair. okay. Yeah, so they actually digitally enhanced his lips. Like, they had everything else that looked pretty darn good and, you know, fairly believable. You know, clearly it's still a puppet, but it looks really damn good and unlike anything we'd seen before. But they just couldn't get the lips to quite go and match up and be able to be as expressive as they wanted. So they actually digitally enhanced his lips. Another reason why I have to go and say, Warner Brothers, what the fuck is up with you and Henry Cavill's mouth in Justice League? How did you not get that right when they made Goro look good 20-some years earlier? (laughs) Because reasons. Can I mustache you a question? No! (laughs) Ugh. So... Going back to another point, so Amy, you can go and get your thread ready, because I said we were going to go and bring up a particular question that the kids were going and asking uh, during the... You actually have the red thread. I'm shocked. (laughs) It looks yellow. Yeah, I've been knitting. (laughs) Good enough. Uh, Yeah, so uh, one of the questions that kept popping up when they were going and doing these uh, samplings with the kids, they kept asking a unique question. What kind of balls does Goro have? Oh, god damn it, I mm. fucking knew it. Why this was a question that kept getting asked still eludes everybody today. It's well, one of the weirdest things that end up in almost every focus group. Well, because Goro kept having so many technical issues, they had to do a little bit of a rewrite while filming. Originally, there was going to be a big, bombastic, wire lead fight between Johnny Cage and Goro. Mm-hmm. But because they didn't think that the puppet was going to hold up long enough in any given shot to be able to do any of the wire work that they wanted to, they had to come up with something different. They had to nerf this impossibly strong character. Which leads to another interesting thing. You see, Johnny Cage, while originally modeled after uh, Iron Fist, ended up ultimately looking a lot like a certain uh, martial artist uh, action star. Uh, Sounded like a Jean... Jean... Uh, not Jean-Luc Picard. What, what is it? It's, Jean-Claude uh, Van Damme? Uh, Jean- yeah, yeah. It kind of looks an awful lot like Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, and his signature move is a set of splits where he'll go and impale a guy through the crotch. Mm-hmm. Which looks an awful lot like a scene from a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, Bloodsport. Did they clip? That these guys were trying to get a license to go and make a video game off of. Well, somebody brought up that question. They clipped it, didn't they? 
Well, uh... Yeah, so, uh, Goro smashes a set of sunglasses and Johnny Cage just decides, you know what, this fucker's going down. So he pulls a blood sport and punches Goro in the nuts. Ball tap. Yeah. Ball tap. Oh, it's... Question. It's the best that moment in the whole movie. That was a double tap? Yeah, it's a double tap. <laughs> that was a good part, too, because of Raiden's reaction in that scene was just funny, too. He, like, whacks the yeah. guy's shoulder going, Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Lyndon Ashby, who plays Johnny Cage, answered the question years later in the DVD commentary of what kind of balls does Goro have? And he described them as very jagged, yet awfully or yet oddly soft. <laughs> God damn it. You can't make shit like this up. That's awesome. I swear a bunch of college students were making this movie. These were not professionals. <laughs> and yet but the ball nice the man there were no professionals it was just shooting from the hip and the ball yeah. punch would stay in mortal Kombat until even nowadays as a technique yeah <laughs> it's it's absolutely delightful uh but yeah the film actually ended up at least for the first half of filming which is mostly the latter half of the movie because that's the way you shoot film sometimes uh thanks to the use of coverage shots it actually ended up cutting down on production time by a couple of weeks which worked out really well. The cast actually had a chance to go and take a break, and it gave them a little bit more time and budget to be able to get things together for preparing to move over to Thailand. And here's why I will go and defend Christopher Lambert's casting in this movie. Originally, when he was cast, he was going to be too expensive to go and have for the entire movie. So what they originally had set out to do was go and record all of his parts in Los Angeles then go and fly over to Thailand and record wide shots with a body double and just have him dub over it. Christopher Lambert was so violently offended about the fact that his agent had worked out this deal that when he found out that they were going to Thailand without him and that he wasn't being paid for it, he said, forget about the next movie. I'm going to Thailand. <laughs> He literally dropped another film that he was working on to continue working on this That's one. That's awesome. <laughs> he was a huge fan of the games, believed in this, fell in love with Paul Anderson, the director, and just the youthful energy. He believed this is the kind of director that we need more of because he works with nothing but pricks and assholes. And here's a young guy that he thinks is going to be a big deal after this film. And he wants to make sure that he stays as honest as possible. I love this man, despite him being an admittedly strange casting choice all the way through. Uh, <laughs> and getting recast later. Yeah. <laughs> More on that later. Uh, Kazanov actually describes being under constant threat of murder as well with this from Lambert's lawyer and agents. Uh, constantly being remember or constantly being reminded that he basically came to Thailand for free. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what do we got here? Oh, um, so going back to that thing about the one to three scale for on how uh, hurt you got. One of the first scenes shot in Thailand was Liu Kang's return to the monks. Now, Lloyd Kana was a really well-known actor. He'd been in everything from Mikhail's Navy uh, to, well, I mean, basically anything shot in Thailand. Let's be honest here. Uh, playing Liu Kang, and he played Liu Kang's grandfather. He also broke three ribs two days before production. 
They were scrambling trying to find somebody to go and replace him. At one point, he went and slapped the casting director and said, No, I'm doing this. And proceeded to go and film for six hours straight without complaint. Mm. That was the first three on the scale the entire time. How much do you want to bet that as soon as his hotel room closed, the door closed, he bit a pillow and screamed? <laughs> it would not surprise me. The guy was like 73 when that scene was shot. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah, sadly no longer with us, but I respect any actor that does that. Now, I will go and say, Thailand as a whole is a really interesting whole production. There's lots of stuff on like the DVDs. I'm not going to go into all the details of this. But this was some of the most picturesque shooting that I have ever seen just in terms of what this place looks like. I really want to go to this place in Thailand after seeing this movie. I also really want to see the place where um, they almost killed Kano. (laughs) So I mentioned before that they had to go and rework some things with some of the fights. And a couple of fights ended up moving to the beaches of this particular uh, island in Thailand. Or island in Thailand. Wow, why did I go and say it like that? But I weird, Rob. You're it's weird. It's fun to say. Island in Thailand. Yeah. Island in Thailand. I drink. <laughs> but not really. Coca-Cola. I mean, I you know took a sip of Coke because I was just going and getting dry in the whistle and it wasn't helping yeah, anything. He has, so he, sorry for that slurp, everyone. He buys, he buys it by the pound. And he mixes it with, and he, and he mixes it with a little bit of food coloring, and he puts it in, in in some water, so nobody knows he's actually having coke. Exactly. Just like Sonia and Kano in their fight scene, you needed a break. Oh, <laughs> snap in the neck. So that actually is uh, the scene we're talking about. So it was so hot in Thailand that it was not uncommon for extras to be passing out on or to be passing out on set. Mm. They just weren't used to it. Everybody freaked out initially, and then they just kind of got used to people just passing out. There's actually a couple of scenes in the movie where you can see guys starting to either flutter or just fall entirely. Hmm. It's kind of messed up, Hmm. but it's just the nature of going and filming in such a remote location and not going and having the ability to go and have an entire set's worth of equipment there. There were no air-conditioned spaces or anything like that. Yeah, they had generators and fans, but they had to be off during filming. Yeah, right? (laughs) It was hell on earth trying to go and film this. Also, there were so many people on that beach that the place apparently smelled like a distillery. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Insane. Now... The reason of why I bring up uh, Kano almost dying... Yeah, this is good. Because Kano died in the movie, but Trevor Goddard legitimately almost died on that beach. Uh, So, the entire scenes that were shot there were done largely because they didn't have Cameron Diaz anymore. So, they needed to go and get Bridget up to speed, get her trained, make sure she knew everything, and was able to go and do, obviously, her moves. You know, especially that you know, scissor lock that she goes and does to Kano. uh, Classic from the game. The problem was, they never planned on shooting on sand. It was not something that they were really prepared for. And it was much softer than what they had heard, than what they had been practicing on in Los Angeles. Just the nature of the beaches is very different on there. It's much more hard pack uh, on the west coast than what it is in Thailand it's very soft it's truly granular it's more like Hawaii if you've ever been there they were sinking into it pretty badly and despite trying very carefully to go and make sure that people weren't hurt too bad 
it was also very difficult. Uh, Katana ended up, uh, quote-unquote, impaling uh, Robin's show uh, in the nutsack at one point <laughs> when they were going and working together. Uh, just completely screwed up, lost footing, just dove in, and then just moved straight forward into him. That was a one for the record. The problem was Trevor Goddard, who was a great professional when it came to filming. When Bridget had him in that lock, he was sinking into the sand. So she was actually putting more and more pressure down on him without realizing it. He almost passed out in that scene. Wow. It was not a good experience. He actually ended up going in, or they actually ended up having to go and call filming for the day to go and take him back to the hospital and make sure he was okay. He was actually Aww. asphyxiating a little bit. That's sad. Yeah. I'm glad nothing bad, you know, permanent happened. Yeah. Well, I will go and say, it really looked great on camera, though. I mean, the shot where it looks <laughs> like he's dying is actually him almost dying. <laughs> Once again, Pat Johnson's thing. If you feel it, just keep going. <laughs> Continuing on. Uh, yes, continuing on, because it really isn't too much more to talk about in terms of the regular crew work that was being done. Uh, as soon as production was ending, the third video game movie came out. Street Fighter. With Jean-Claude Van Damme. And it dramatically underperformed. Bef better New or worse than Double Dragon? Better than Double Dragon, but worse than Super Mario Bros. So, in other words, quad this is where the term then yeah. yeah. Well, this is where the term video game curse came from. Okay. So that was actually a Siskel and Ebert review comment that came up. So things were looking bad. New Line wasn't sure what to do. So to make sure that it was even worth putting the money into marketing on this, they put together an extremely rough cut without any visual effects. None of the proper trimming and timing. There was no ADR work done yet. They put together a quick cut of the film and screened it. Audiences loved it. They had no idea what was going on with this. For some reason, all the test audiences ended up going and scoring it overwhelmingly positive. The only feedback that came back was, didn't have as many fights as I expected. <laughs> now this is where it gets kind of interesting. Because New Line, who has no faith in this production at all, suddenly goes, So, we should go back and shoot more. <laughs> <laughs> so they authorize another $5 million, essentially increasing the budget by a full quarter in this situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they go back to work. So, so in other words, they the 360, they 180 their entire opinion just by yeah exactly no it completely changed just based on these early audience feedbacks and this is also might be the only case where i've actually seen test audiences actually impact a film positively because what they ended up doing they ended up extending two scenes that they had shot previously the first one with uh reptile <laughs> was the first one that they ended up shooting originally it was just robin show fighting the cgi monster that was him and instead of going into the gargoyle and getting trapped like it was in the original scripted version they ended up going and using the morphing technology that they had developed for Terminator 2 
uh, with all the liquid metals effects, they ended up using that to go and make him into the Ninja Reptile. So that hurts. So they end up adding that entire fight scene, which I think might actually be one of the strongest just visual fight scenes that they did in the entire movie came from that one. Uh, that's also fun as well because uh, Pat Johnson had already moved on to another film at this point. So Robin Show ended up stepping up to not only star in that particular sequence, but was also doing all the fight choreography as well. So good for him. He also broke three ribs during the course of that particular filming sequence. Oh. Is that a three? That was the second three, the second three. of production. There we go. There we go. <laughs> and we must talk about the third and final three, which came from the final fight that was added. You see, on the last day of filming, there's that scene with Johnny Cage and Scorpion in that rubber tree plantation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They did not have the time. They were under a really strict time limit and budgetary limit. Uh, they didn't have time to go and actually come up with choreography. Apparently, the lead set guys had found that particular uh, plantation and said, listen, we can shoot something here. We'll just go and get a whole lot of uh, passive shots. We'll just do some cool things, and we'll come up with a narrative in post. So originally, it was like a 30-second fight that ended with uh, Scorpion going and getting a kick to the face and getting knocked the fuck out. Then it ended up turning into Scorpion going and warping them into his lair, <laughs> which was modeled after Tibetan burial tubes, which they implied were lined with the corpses of those that he had killed in the previous tournaments. Mm-hmm. That Johnny Cage fight and him took seven days to film. <laughs> it was all raised surfaces. They shot it in the same aircraft hangar they had originally started production in. They got one out of the three to be able to shoot with, so they had to convert it between those two sets. And that made for another really interesting one, except for the fact that um, uh, Lyndon Ashby, uh, Johnny Cage, got kicked in the kidney so hard he peed blood for a week. Oh. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it was bad. See, Ow. that was that whole fight scene I thought was weird because it just like pops up and you're like, oh, it's just here. Okay, we're just into fights. And then it goes somewhere else. And I'm like, I feel like this whole thing is like them trying to make references to the game of like various yeah. levels. No, and it turns out it was just them trying to cleverly work in the fact that they didn't, you know, allow them enough time to go and shoot a full fight scene. Yeah. So that yeah. So it's just like, oh, basically like invented levels for a video game. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, pretty much. And sure enough, in a later game, that area would become a level. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. cool actually. Huh. Yeah, Mortal Kombat Deadly, Deadly Alliance. Go freaking figure. Uh, but yeah, that was the third three out of filming. To which Paul Anderson, when Linda Dashby apparently was just being a whiny bitch during the last day of filming with that, went, how many ribs have you broken? Robin Show fought a whole, did a whole fight scene with three broken ribs. You're just pissing blood. You'll be fine. <laughs> Mm. We're really blessed that none of these actors had permanent. I know, damage. right? Once again, this film is fucking weird. Just everything went crazy all the way through. They also shot a new ending as well. Originally, the ending of the film was just going to be the four lead characters Raiden, Sonya Blade, Johnny Cage, and uh, Luke Kang 
walking away, taking Katana with them, and just walking off the island. They ended up going back and reshooting uh, final scene, not with the entire cast. They ended up doing it in front of a green screen, but went back to the original uh, uh, Thailand... Uh, ruins that they shot at the opening scene with the monks they went back there and had uh shao khan showing up there in the most um dr claw voice possible <laughs> brought to us by frank megatron welker himself mm. showing up to go and be you know sequel bait which may or may not have been a mistake in hindsight so with all those changes, they went back. It took them almost four months to complete all the visual effects points. There were 200 different special effects sequences that needed to be worked down on computers afterwards. And which, a lot of them ended up getting a lot of notoriety and praise. Uh, the film ultimately did come out uh, in 1995. It had been pushed back a few months. Originally it was supposed to premiere in July. They ended up going and excuse me, moving it out more into the fall season where it was a little bit more poised for some success. There wasn't a lot of competition for it when it first came out. That being said, everybody was so fucking nervous with this movie. Everybody <laughs> was really proud of what they had done, had talked very highly about it. Uh, Paul Anderson went way out of his way to not be anywhere near Hollywood because he was convinced his career would be over. Given what had happened with the other video game movies, he was convinced this was going to be the end of his career and he just wanted to revel in what he had done. So he went to Hollywood, he watched the movie himself in theaters, didn't go and attend the premiere, didn't have any idea what the dailies were like, came back the following Monday, found out that it was the number one movie in the world, and stayed there for three full weeks, and was there, we'll say, within the top ten for almost four months. The film was a huge success. He actually still regrets to, his, or to this day that he did not hang out with the rest of the staff at New Line waiting and just watching the returns coming in each day. The film did really well in the box office. Instantly, the franchise had more legs than just the video game. Even being PG-13, both audiences as well as critics at the time really liked it. Although it did make for a very interesting rift between uh, Gene Siskel and Robert Ebert. Because Siskel really liked the film... Roger Ebert gave the worst explanation for why he didn't like the film, saying that the theater was too dark. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's one of the weirdest things. You can find the clips of this. It just doesn't make any sense. I'm honestly convinced he never watched the film and came in there with the expectation of both of them just panning it and then suddenly going and finding his partner, the more studious one, absolutely loved it. Thought it was just a fun Dumb popcorn flick, minimal story, but easy to follow. Thought it was good. Larry Kazanoff would then go on to go and make Mortal Kombat, Defenders of the Realm, the animated series, Mortal Kombat Conquest, which was spelled with a C instead of a K. Really bad missed opportunity there, guys, for the love of That's God. That's a lack of continuity with Exactly! <laughs> That's the game, right? Conquest is the game, right? Uh, no, that was a live-action series that was produced. Okay. There was also Mortal Kombat Live, a live-action rock, metal, EDM, and martial arts stage I show remember that. that was touring live around the country. <laughs> Good lord. As well as New Line immediately going into production of a second film. 
to which nobody actually had any interest in being in. We brought up a couple of times here that uh, the cast basically isn't in the second movie. And that's because pretty much everybody hated the initial script that was done. New Line really pushed everything through early on, trying to go and get the new film put together, and didn't go and bring back the original writer, didn't go and bring back principal photography, didn't bring back Pat Johnson for any of the stunt work or effects. So when everything started coming together, they started going and showing it to the cast of the previous film. Christopher Lambert basically said, yeah, what is this? <laughs> he could not understand what direction they were going for with it and described the ending as being so unconventional and out of nowhere, he couldn't imagine this being tied to the original film. <laughs> and you saw the same thing going going happen. Bridget Wilson ended up going and walking away from the role despite being offered a very hefty sum at that point between... Uh, Billy Madison in this film, she looked like she was going to be a really big actress for years to come. So she walked away from it. Uh, you went and had uh, Lyndon Ashby uh, walk away from it. Uh, yeah, his character pretty much just got straight up killed at the beginning yep. of it. Uh, they brought in a different guy to play Jax in the movie than the one that was in the beginning of the actual movie. I have to refer to it as the actual movie because I still don't have any idea what Annihilation was, but I can't call it a movie. Uh... The only thing that really was kind of cool, uh, the actor who would end up becoming uh, Scorpion later on uh, in the film. Oh, dear God, why am I forgetting his freaking name? Jesus Christ. Reptile. Uh, well, no, J Jason O'Keefe, uh, who ended up playing the role of Reptile. Uh, he was about to, her. He was actually a third actor that really doesn't get enough praise going into the second film. He played uh, Reptile and was one of the runners up to go and be Liu Kang. He ultimately ended up getting the role in the follow up movie as the good Sub Zero. Yeah, so he's. Which is kind of a weird thing. It's like, wow, you, you went from being nobody in the film to at the last second getting a chance to go and be an actor in the film, and now you're going and playing arguably the fan favorite character of the time and I still think probably to this day Sub-Zero is the best. In uh, Sub-Zero later on. Yeah, it's like, wow, that's actually really cool. But he's only in there for that, like, that one scene. He does some fighting and then he does the exposition and gives the plot device and then... But it's like, hey, it's it's a, a step Someone's up from... Give it. Well, it's like yeah. what they did with Nightwolf. Yeah, he, that happened yeah, too. He Nightwolf, showed up. Nightwolf shows up and then whacks him with a tomahawk and that's it. Yeah, he's yeah. supposed to have, <laughs> that like... Was dumb it was it, and then you're thinking oh so the stuff after that has to do with the test of nightwolf but then it, it turns out it doesn't and Nightwolf no. did nothing yeah it makes no sense it was a waste of a character yeah he just showed yeah. up and was like nah and then leaves i was hoping for go. like an awesome like fight with tomahawks that would have been amazing you gotta go on a spiritual journey no i'm just gonna <laughs> leave now believe in what i tell him and just get out of there he probably shit. Yeah, he was gonna go to like TGF Fridays or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've been recording for over an hour. I need to know about the Kano legacy. <laughs> about Kano affecting the character. Yeah. So you um, said more on that later. It's yeah. later. So yeah, th this actually is where everything needs to go and culminate ultimately in the end. So, the despite the second film. 
almost being a death wish for Mortal Kombat outside of video games, because everything fell apart after that. The animated series got cancelled, martial arts show got cancelled, Conquest got cancelled. Nobody wanted to go and touch anything. And Threshold Entertainment was literally just handed the rights, never being asked for a back or being bid against it. Hmm. Even to this day, they are still the only holder of it because nobody has bid against them for the Mortal Kombat IP outside of video games. That being said, there were some things in the game that inspired the actual development team at Midway and had them go and work them into the actual game itself. Kano being the most notable one. So, uh, Trevor Gregory, who played the role, Kano's kind of an interesting character. Originally, he was supposed to be Japanese-American was on what he was written as in the video game Bible that they had used for development. Not something that had been expressly stated in the game, so it's one of those things, kind of like Raiden, could be done pretty much any way they wanted to up to that point. Well, he didn't really like that. So he wanted to go and play him off as kind of a cocky British bad guy. Unfortunately, his British accent is so fucking atrocious. <laughs> and the costume design being made so open and airy so that he himself wouldn't go and pass out on stage. Um, uh, yeah. He came off Australian. Which is awesome. Very came <laughs> off Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In no way was anything intended, nothing anybody had ever thought of. But they fucking loved his performance so much, they retconned the character into being Australian and updated the character design. That's awesome. Faceplate, outfits, background, and when they started going and doing full voice acting, brought him back, even after he'd retired from acting, to go and play the role of the character up until one of the more recent games. Aww. I think it was 10 like, was, his, uh, was the one he didn't do. Yeah, I think so. Mm. I, I can't say I've looked that hard. It's just one of those, are you kidding me? This actually influenced things in that That's way. That's cool, though. We talked a little bit already, already about Raiden going and changing, just in terms of his character profile. Not so much origin of the character. He's gone back more towards the traditional Asian lightning god. That being said, the character points have stuck around on there. He's a little bit funny, very confident, extremely cocky really was influenced heavily by Christopher Lambert, who also has come back to go and voice him in several of the games. That's cool. Really fun there as well. Uh, Katana, who, you know, originally was just a palette swap of Jade, ultimately, when, the, or when she was introduced in Mortal Kombat 2, was actually developed into a full character and is one of the few females that doesn't give me nightmares uh, in those games because, thank God, they didn't go and give her scary God, teeth like teeth. her mother. Katana? No, 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 no that's no. not Melina. Melina. No, oh, her mother yeah, in right. the thing is uh, Sadal yeah. in the movie. Yeah, yeah you're, and right, you're right. Sorry, Melina is the weird clone. Melina comes on for like one That's scene, it. has a has a mud fight, and then is gone. Yep. But you, because you know you Shut can't up. give two female characters a badass bottle, battle. They have to roll around in mud. God, I hate that. Especially in the '90s, that was such a trope. Yeah, it's like really. That's gross. I mean, yeah. I mean, there it's dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm for mud wrestling, but if it was like not the only girl on girl fight, yeah. No, I'm like, with you. Waste. It's a waste. Girls are so agile. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, we also saw stuff like Scorpion's uh, 
whip chain becoming more sentient as a result of the film. There's just so many little things. If you look at what Mortal Kombat 2 was before that film came out to what it became ultimately, it's weird. This is a film that should not have worked. I stand by that. Weird is the only way I can describe it. It's just such a strange spectacle. It is an hour and a half of just dumb entertainment. It shouldn't work. But it did. This is not like Street Fighter the movie, where you have Raul Julia overacting to the point where you can't help but love his performance and everything else is just so bad in contrast that you also can't help but love it. This is a case of they made a simple film that somebody that's never played the games could watch and enjoy, and they made something that was great fanfare for the people that enjoyed it. And that's where I worry about the new Mortal Kombat movie, ah, bringing this all full circle to what we talked about last point time. point of this podcast. That's really what this is about, is that this is a movie that was clearly made with a lot of passion by people that didn't even really care about the game. It was a film that comes off very genuine despite being just dumb and hokey. And having seemingly no reason to exist other than one executive producer who should have just been told no and taken it. I go and see the new trailer for Mortal Kombat, and while I think it is going to be visually, and probably storyline-wise, a much more engaging film than what we got with the first one, I don't think it's going to be as fun. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. Mortal Kombat is not a film that, especially if you look on Rotten Tomatoes today, it has not fared very well in reviews. But unlike Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which shares very similar overall critical reviews on the modern stage, yep. you can go and pick that up in any bargain bin at any Walmart. You can go and pick up, or you can go and watch it on pretty much any streaming service without needing to pay for it. Mortal Kombat, the original film, doesn't just have a cult following, it just has a following. It's something that still makes good money to this day. Because people enjoy it. It's simple. It's dumb. It is what a Hollywood blockbuster, in a lot of respects, should be. An escape from reality into something out of this world. And when I look at the Mortal Kombat movie that's coming out, in a lot of respects, it just looks like a fairly generic action movie of the modern day. It's very dark. It looks like it's got great production qualities on there. And it looks like it's probably filled with tons of Easter eggs. But that's kind of what we expect these days. There's nothing seemingly unique about it. It just doesn't feel... It feels like it's just going to be a movie. Versus the original was a spectacle. It was something to behold. It was something weird. It never should have existed. And it got people excited. Despite having some of the worst marketing ever. Despite having three other video game films that failed at some other level. It still is one of the standards of the industry for this. And I just worry about this new movie. That being said, I will be going and seeing it in theaters. I am excited for this movie. I think that's the... I just don't think it's going to do I well. I think that's the point, though, is... The people that are, it looks like it's made for people that like uh, Mortal Kombat. Like, the fan is very much, a lot of, like, gritty fan service is that you go in there. What we've talked about, uh, I'm going to point out uh, John here, 
John has pointed out many things in that thing because it's made for John. It is. Yeah. It's definitely pointing out there's this, there's that character, there's the uh, realization of them. Uh, definitely grittier, definitely more lifelike, uh, not as comedy. But unless you are that very specific target audience that is very into Mortal Kombat or even adjacent and understand Mortal Kombat, you're going to be the majority of the person that's just going to be like, oh, it's just another action movie. Oh, that's a game. Oh, uh, uh, maybe I'll see it. Maybe I'm not. Depends. I'm not really. They're not really pining for it, but there is that. Yeah. That core audience that is, but that core audience is not going to be enough to sustain it. And that's exactly my point there, man. Like, th- I don't know. It, th- this is probably a weird one that nobody's going to get. Has anybody seen John Carter? Oh, yeah. I love you. <laughs> See, I, yeah. me clapping, I have a, a <laughs> thing with all these sci-fi movies that do really badly, that are like great epics that don't do well, but they're fantastical groups of just yeah. crazy things that high concept that you really have to get into. John Carter's one of them. Uh, Mortal Engines we watched recently, that's kind of up there. Um, uh, uh, Valerian is weirdly like that. Valerian is a great concept. It just has a shitty main character who I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> but the rest of it is just like... Yeah, you capture that one on the nose. The rest of it is like, I want to know more about the world and the yeah. sci-fi behind it. But it just... those They're just so high concept that I feel like people don't want to watch them because it's too much to intake that they don't understand what's going on. That's... Yeah. Well, John and, Carter. And that's just it, though. You're, you're capturing exactly where I'm going. I'm shocked here. Yeah. It's, you and me, man, we vibing it's, here. It's we why vibing. we're on a podcast together. It's why we do. I know, I know. Oh, but like, I, I think about this. Like, I think about John Carter. You know, the John Carter of Mars books are really interesting reads. I know they're not in the cultural zeitgeist anymore. You know, these were written back all the way back at the beginning of the last century. It's we've gone a long way since then, but they're still really good books. I found them in high school and just fell in love with them. When I heard Disney was making a movie. I was the only person in the theater watching it, but damn, I was into it. <laughs> you know, to that point, uh, Valerian, I didn't even think about that one, but that's another good example. Uh, more to my follow-up point, which is one that I know Cole understands, Warcraft. Oh, yeah. You're looking yeah. at certain films where, yes, I think Tyler there is knows a it better than audience I do. that... <laughs> Technically. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> Tyler knows it for a different reason altogether, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, his fingerprints just all over that movie. Literally. Yeah, that specific character, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's also all over the fingerprints uh, of the Lord of the Rings film. <laughs> or no, the Hobbit. Yeah. Um, the Hobbit. The Hobbit. We did the Hobbit stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. you would have been too young for Lord of the um, Rings. Hobbit. Also, though, the yeah. Lord of the Rings were all done by Weta, and that's not even chainmail. That's all rubber tubing that they cut up. Oh, is that yeah. all that? Yeah, it's just oh, rubber. Fuck. Don't get Tyler started on talking about yeah. chainmail in different movies. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll save that for another time. No, but those films are, I'd make the argument, at least decent, if not all the way to good. But you're not going to go and get new audiences into them. And the other thing as well, and especially with Warcraft, the biggest problem that I've got with that film, it looks great. It's well put together. A Warcraft fan will get it. That being said, no amount of effort that was made in that movie to try to make it approachable to a new audience was going to work. There's too much content. 
to be able to go and piece that all together with the kind of story they wanted to do. And with them looking like they're really going and pulling a lot into the modern version of the Mortal Kombat lore for this movie, the first film had it easy. There really wasn't much of a story. They had a basic outline that was able to be, you know, basically done in an exposition dump of under a minute. With a guy that had an inconsistent accent. <laughs> and made one of the funniest lines in the movie. With one of the three of you will determine the future of the mortal world. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, I don't know. The Mortal Kombat 11 game so cinematic, you could almost just like watch somebody play that. You but could. That's, well, that's a different thing. Well, and that's actually the final point I want to make because I do worry a little bit here. Mortal Kombat came back strong with the ninth game in the series. Ten did really well. Eleven has really underperformed. It's had two re-releases and still, it sounds like, hasn't made back production costs at this point. Now, I think part of that's just because of the release time frame and the fact that at the time YouTube seemed like it was trying to kill video games on its platform... That's a whole different discussion. People didn't know that the game even released. It's done better post-launch period than it did during launch period, which I don't think has ever happened before. <laughs> At least not for a major release title. That's more of an indie thing to happen. And I just wonder how much of that core audience is going to go to the theater for this or subscribe to HBO Max to be able to go and see it during that first 30 days where it's out. Now, I say this as somebody who's not even a huge fan of Mortal Kombat, the games. I just like this dumb movie that I saw my senior year of high school when Dish Network told him it was a rated R movie. And it's just like, you know, I haven't seen a lot of rated R films. I I've heard good things about this one. I'm going to watch it. And then found out years later it was PG-13. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I literally kept wondering, what the hell is R about this movie? <laughs> I've seen Disney movies more <laughs> more extreme than this. I don't know. That's a, it's a movie that I know that, like, you just scroll through your TV, your cable, and eventually you're going to find Mortal Kombat because it's going to be on one of the channels. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those yeah, movies. That's just it. It's still making it's, money. It's the same as the Dra as the Dungeons & Dragons movie. Eventually you'll find it on, on, on oh, the stream. <laughs> oh, God help us God, all with that one. That one, that's another one that's that's in that cusp. It's in the Venn diagram of it all. Yeah. But, uh, yep, yeah, that's, uh, that's basically it. Thank you for going and listening to my extremely fractured history of the development of the Mortal Kombat movie. But I needed to talk about this. I, I really needed to go and make clear why I think that this new film is in trouble already. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope that this ends up being a huge hit and that the entire episode here is worth nothing. That I was just wrong the entire way through. Please prove me wrong. And by that if, I mean, please let the movie be good so that you can prove me wrong. If you're wrong, can we recast everybody except two of us for next season? You know what? I'm going to say yes because I'm that confident my BS movie meter is going off bad this time around. <laughs> And does this mean, uh, and hopefully that? you all enjoy this hour and 45 minute podcast. <laughs> Ooh, is that all? <laughs> we could go for longer. Well, hey guys, we it. got like another hour and a half that I had planned out for this. Okay, let's keep this going here. Let's talk annihilation. I'm pretty no, sure I'm me and Amy hey, would thank you to head first onto the desk by that point. <laughs>
Time to yeah. annihilate this tangent. Exactly. Finish Thank it. you very much and for listening to all of us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Get over here into the podcast. Thank you very much for listening to us, everybody. You know where to go and find us. We are on uh, Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on whatever the hell Google's got this time. Last FM. We are anywhere. Free podcasts are sold. Let us know what you thought of this. Do you like the little bit of extra preparation that we did here? Could this be kind of a fun thing to see again? We want to know. Soccer Rangers Podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Instagram, at Twitter, at Soccer Rangers. We have a Facebook. I don't know if any of us are still using it anymore, but there's Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to all of us. This is a lot of fun, at least for me. I think everybody else here is at least somewhat into yeah. it. John's asleep. This is one of those fun cool. I like talk it. ones. We can just it's listen to Rob yeah. talk. It is fun. It's all right. Well, with yeah, with that, we ended on a happy note. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Now finish this. Seriously, hit, 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 hit the stop button or, or flip over to something else. I know you got Joe Rogan in there somewhere. Just click over to him. He's more entertaining. Robtality. <laughs> Robtality. Amy wins.